You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. So the first one I did was J. Wesley Richards. This was a new series I want to do on religion, you know, religions from around the world. So the big takeaway from speaking to J. Richards is that, first of all, he's very gracious, very well-spoken. Um, but the thing I got from him is that there are thousands of different types of um, religions. And within a religion like Christianity, there's, you know, there's Protestant, there's Methodist, there's Baptist, there's... I mean, there's so many, and there's, there's literally probably thousands, according to him. And what I realized is that um, religion is it's very similar to any interaction amongst people. You know, he said that the people that are of the same faith and the same subsection of the same faith uh, will tend to argue more than maybe people of different faiths completely. And this makes sense. So I realized, like, you, literally your congregation, the church you go to if you go, can have one version of your faith and then someone that's the same sect, you know, let's say you're a Presbyterian and so are they, they go to a different church in a different state or a different city. They actually may think differently enough to you that you'll argue with them. Um, supposed to be the same faith, supposed to be the same specific type of faith, but there's definitely, um, so, so what I've realized, like with everything, religion, um, can happen on many, many levels. There's again, within your particular church, even within your particular family, within your own self, but again, expanding outwards within your own self, within your family, then within your church, then amongst other churches of the same faith, then your faith in general, your faith in different countries, other faiths, no faith. It's amazing to see that continuum of change. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, and I have a co-host uh, for this new podcast series. Uh, it's going to be on the various religions of the world. My co-host is Greg Roller, and our guest today is Jay Wesley Richards, a uh, very nice guy that I've uh, spoken to about uh, one of the books that he's written uh, called Eat Fast Feast, but uh, we're going to be talking instead about um, his faith and how that faith has evolved over his life. Um, he's a research assistant professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, uh, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and executive director of The Stream. And again, this series uh, will be about the different faiths of the world and the people that are of those faiths and how those faiths in their personal lives have evolved and uh, what the consequence of that is. So, Jay, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hey, great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Good to have you. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, Jay, thanks, if, you, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you, you were saying offline before you started that um, you're currently of the Catholic faith, but you're a convert. Uh, could you give me a little bit of background of the role faith has played in your life and uh, where you converted from? And, and we'll ask about why. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually... 
born and raised in a Presbyterian church. So I've been, you know, more or less Christian my whole life. It was a fairly active church goer, but I grew up in Texas uh, in the 70s and 80s. And at the time that, you know, that's sort of the demographic. I mean, the city where I lived, almost everyone was either um, Baptist Church of Christ uh, or, or Catholic, and then the sort of remainder mostly Protestant. I had, I think I had two Jewish friends in my my high school. So it was, you know, 99% <laughs> Christian effectively where I, where I grew up. But I got off to college, went to a, a small liberal arts school uh, that, you know, wasn't, it maybe had, had a Christian background, but certainly wasn't by the time I got there and very quickly realized, well, you know, I mean, I, I more or less took this stuff for granted when I was growing up, but I wasn't sure that I honestly believed it. Um, but interestingly, somebody had given me a, a set of books by C.S. Lewis, the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia, but a lot of people may know him from that. They don't know that he also wrote a lot of books on Christian apologetics. And so over the course of my first couple of years in college, I thought, okay, I need to really step back and see if there's a reason to believe any of this stuff. And um, Lewis was the first one that really convinced me uh, that that believing in God is is intellectually respectable, I guess is the way I, I'd put it now. But that was sort of my worry at the time. It's not like I knew a lot of great philosophical arguments against the of God. I just wasn't sure that I should just simply trust what I had been told. And Lewis convinced me that no, they're they're good and serious arguments, uh, not only for the existence of a, of a God that is a sort of a transcendent creator of everything, but that there's good reason to uh, believe the basic. Uh, claims of Christianity. And so that was um, hugely important for me. And I think is, is why I remained a Christian. Though I, was, I was Protestant for a long time. In fact, this for the first half of my adult career. Uh, I was a Protestant, still basically a Presbyterian. Um, and through a kind of long course of events, I, I started thinking, well, you know, Protestantism is effectively 500 years old. Christianity is 2000 years old. Um, I've never really looked at the claims, say, of, of Catholics, who um, in many ways, I think, have, have the claim to, uh, to be anchored in the early church and early church practice. So I'm actually a philosopher. So I actually opened up a Word document, made a list of Catholic doctrines that I thought as a Protestant were problematic, and thought, I'm just going to study these really carefully, and I'll read the best arguments for and against them. Was not planning on becoming Catholic at all at the time. Uh, but I honestly, frankly, I found the Catholic arguments better once I was I actually was in a position to look at it. And so um, I've been Catholic now for about a, uh, about 11 years. Okay. And then, um, again, I'm coming from a place of not knowing you, but to you, what are the fundamental differences between Catholicism and you know, being Presbyterian? What were the maybe one or two or three arguments that really swayed you? Yeah, I mean, there's a big one in Protestants. Um, there's a Protestant idea called sola scriptura, that, which is scriptural alone. And so the claim is that um, everything that we need to know about our faith and need to believe is in the text of scripture. That is in the Bible, or as Christians say, in the Old and New Testament. But I knew for having having studied theology and philosophy that uh, the Protestant Bible actually has seven fewer books than the, than the Catholic and Orthodox Bible. And that's a result of the Reformation where Martin Luther said, okay, these uh, seven of these books, in fact, he wanted even more to be out of the Bible. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to actually look at the kind of history of so-called canonization. That is, you know, why did we decide that these particular books are, are in the Bible? And the first thing I realized is that of course, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you what's in the Bible. So you end up having to trust 
the judgment of the early church. It turns out the Bible wasn't even canonized until the fourth century AD. And so already, if you're a Protestant, you're trusting the early church. You're trusting, frankly, a bunch of Catholics to have decided what was actually in Scripture. That's not in Scripture. And so there's a kind of logical problem if you say everything you should believe uh, in the faith must be in the Bible. Well, the Bible itself doesn't tell you what's in the Bible. So you end up having to trust the judgment of the early church. And this conforms to the Catholic view, which is that Jesus didn't initially give us a Bible. He promised the Holy Spirit and he promised a church. And then that church collected and used its judgment to decide, okay, what was consistent with, with pra- that practice? Well, that's the, that's the Catholic view that it, the Bible is the word of God, but it is embedded in a tradition that's been given to us. And there's this, doesn't mean everything in tradition is a good thing, but there's this sacred t- tradition that's been passed down. So that was the biggie uh, the, the sort of big issue that really sort of made me realize, gosh, there may be some good arguments for Catholics. The second one was the doctrine of the real presence, which is, again, this is really hard to kind of get your mind around if you're not already kind of in theology, but there's this debate among Christians about uh, what exactly happens in communion. What's the significance told us to eat bread and drink wine and this, this ceremony to remember him. Uh, but if you look carefully at the New Testament, it's say John 6, um, and what all their early church fathers said, they believed that in a mysterious way, uh, God makes himself bodily present to us so that the, the bread and the wine actually become uh, mysteriously the body and blood of Christ, though staying under the appearance of bread and wine. And then he makes himself available to us. And this is the way in which he, he, just, he justifies and sanctifies our very beings. And so this this was a tough issue because for Protestants, Protestants generally say, ah, it's just a kind of symbolic language. It's very, very difficult to justify that um, if you look at the way that the church always understood the, the claims and if you look at the actual to Jesus. And so this is a problem that only happens, that would only come up if you're already a Christian. So you're already a Christian and you're trying to say, okay, what did Jesus actually say? And what did all Christians that were near him, what did they actually believe? Again, I just I was persuaded by the Catholic argument that, in fact, this idea of the real present um, is a genuinely Christian doctrine. And I actually came to that conclusion before I believed it. I, I spent a couple of months thinking, okay, the Catholic argument is right, but I don't know if it's true. And then one day I was praying about it, and I, I found myself that believing it was true. And so I was in an awkward position because I had not planned to become Catholic. Uh, but I thought, well, you know, you should do what you think is true. Um, at the time, it was somewhat inconvenient. But that was essentially it. It was a, a, essentially a kind of a weighing of the, these doctrinal disputes and trying to do it carefully and then trying to be intellectually honest. And I just said, gosh, once I've read this, I, you know, I can't help but but find the Catholic arguments persuasive. All right. Well, Greg, do you have a question at this point? But I have a, a lot of questions. Um, yeah, actually, I, I, I think um, there are a couple aspects of this we could go into, and I think it's fascinating that you you move from Protestantism to Catholicism because I've met a number of people. That seems to be a trend now uh, that I would say it's not it's not a huge trend, but I've mm-hmm. run into a lot of that, and I, I think people who've grown up Baptist and have you know lived their entire lives as Baptist and then middle age or at some time uh, you know in their 30s or 40s or 50s make this decision that uh, that they feel called to the to the Catholic to the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. So I guess one of the questions I do do want to raise, and I, and I don't know if, if you want to get into this or not, we can sure. we can skip over this, is the the notion of papal authority and mm-hmm. where. Where does that fit in? I mean, as, as I'm sure you're aware, historically, one of the things that the Protestants were protesting was the abuses of papal authority 
Right. And how that had in many ways corrupted the faith, the institutional church. And so how, how have you reconciled that? And then where would you come down if the Pope makes a pronouncement that you think is, I'm going to use the term unbiblical, but mm-hmm. um, that's in conflict with scripture. How, how, how well, would right. you resolve that? That's a great question. And what's funny is because I, I actually went to Protestant seminary. So I've got a Protestant seminary degree. So I was sort of acutely aware of, we'll just call it the problems of the really bad popes, right? I mean, there's been some terrible popes in history. And there was a bad one about the time of the Protestant Reformation. What's funny is that what I discovered is that Catholics, uh, including Catholic authorities, generally acknowledge that. And so what I had thought the Catholic claim about papal authority was, was, well, sort of anything the Pope says is infallible and you have to believe it. It turns out the doctrine of papal infallibility is really, really narrowly construed. So basically, Catholics believe that um, the Holy Spirit will protect the Pope from teaching direct doctrinal error when he's sort of seated in his seat teaching doctrine. So that doesn't mean that everything the Pope says is true. It doesn't even necessarily mean that he's a good guy. Um, and it's, it's really a part of this package that, okay, uh, Christ set up a, a visible church and an authority that's represented by the seat of Peter. So Peter being the Pope of Rome, uh, he, there's, a, there's a succession plan, essentially. Um, in the same way that you could, have a, you could have a hereditary monarchy give you a succession plan, it doesn't guarantee you that every good guy, and in fact, Peter, the first Pope, actually denied Christ three times uh, when Christ was on earth. And then in the book of Acts, we learn that, that Paul had to confront him because Peter actually made a serious error. Um, and so for me, that was not as big of an impediment as some it, was, it would be for people because I realized that, okay, look, I'm not signing on to this idea that the, whatever the Pope says, I have to believe, which would be incoherent in any case because Popes say different things. And so I can tell you the current Pope says things very often that I think that's not, really, that's not well thought out. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> the church in her wisdom doesn't impose that, uh, th- that belief upon us. And so I don't have a difficult time believing um, that, that, that Christ set up a succession plan. And in fact, I think that it's a plausible interpretation. He told Peter, you know, on this rock, I'll build my church and I give you the keys, that that was a statement of, of authority. And so I think there's a very narrowly circumscribed sort of protection that the see of Peter, that is bishopric in, in Rome, has, but it's really, really narrow. And so that's totally consistent with a Pope being an adulterer and a, a scandal and saying lots of stupid things, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. Rich, do you, do you, had, you had some questions. Why don't you go ahead and, and uh, go the direction you'd like to go with us? Yeah, mine, mine will be general and very different. So, um, Jay, I'm sure you interact with and you know maybe you are married to someone of a different faith, or you certainly probably interact with people various faiths or people with mm-hmm. no faith what is that interaction like to you when you act with someone you know when you interact with someone that's either agnostic or atheist or jewish or muslim um do you find that you're thinking certain thoughts in your head or you know feeling sorry for that person or feeling like you know better or you know maybe some of these thoughts you i'm sure you want to keep private but uh, what <laughs> what have been some of the various thoughts you've had that maybe surprised you when you interact with people that don't believe uh Catholicism, they're different. Yeah, I mean, um, fortunately, my wife and I have um, very similar views on which I, I take to be a blessing, but I do have friends. I have a friend who's Muslim and a very serious Muslim, and I have several uh, Jewish friends, some of whom are religious, very religious and orthodox, some are not. 
Um, my, my, my general view on this thing is I, I think of these things as a Christian. And so I think all human beings are made in the image of God um, and have equal value and dignity because of that, whatever our beliefs happen. And so I think that's, a, that's honestly a really helpful thing. And I'm also kind of acutely aware of the contingency uh, with which I myself came to a particular. At the same time, I don't take a kind of relative. I think sometimes when we interact with people that have different beliefs, we're we're tempted to sort of say, well, it really doesn't matter or not. But in some ways, we're not even taking our friends seriously because they, somebody disagrees with you on something really important or fundamental. It's a really important to belief, belief to them and it, just as it is to me. And so if one person believes not A and one person believes A, then somebody's wrong, right? And so, the, of course, there are many religious beliefs that are compatible. So it's not like our religious beliefs are these incommensurable language games, which we don't have any in common. The Catholics are Christians, uh, Jews and Muslims, for instance, all, are all monotheists. And so I think we share that in common. I also believe in the natural law. So I think that everybody knows that it's wrong to torture a small child for the fun of it, even if you're an atheist. I think that's, we have moral knowledge at a general level, just as we have knowledge of the physical world. And so I think there's things we share in common. And so my general um, way to approach this is I don't like to have knockdown, drag out sort of doctrinal arguments people. If somebody asks me what I believe is a Catholic, like we're doing now, I, I, I try to explain it. But I try to build bridges on the things uh, that we agree on. So I work with fellow Christians that are Protestant, Jews, and less so with some on things on which we agree. And that's, that tends to be the way uh, I approach these things interpersonally. But I'm usually not thinking about the fact, you know, my close friend in Seattle, who's an Orthodox Jew, I'm not constantly thinking about the fact that he's an Orthodox Jew when I'm with him, though I'd be sort of aware of it if we were talking about the holiday like that. Um, and honestly, it's a, kind of a, in some ways, a nice thing about um, being an academic and doing a kind of think tank academic like I am is that I get an opportunity to interact with people that um, are actually really serious. They may disagree with me on fundamental religious questions, but they're still really serious about it and take these things seriously. In some ways, I think that's more healthy than the kind of modern, really kind of postmodern idea that, well, everybody has their views, but Really, what you're saying is everybody has their views, but none of them are true. I think we should take people seriously enough to say, look, if they're right, I'm, I'm wrong, at least about those points on which we disagree. Yeah, this is a question I'll probably ask everyone, every guest. But, you know, I think at this moment, let's say there's a, you know, a billion Muslims and they're probably mostly great people and they have their mm -hmm. faith and their, you know, their, their faith is strong and they believe one thing. And at the same time, there's, there's millions of Jews, they believe something else. At the same time, there's millions of Christians, et cetera. Why would this be so? And what, what do you learn from that? What do you take from that? But why do you think that this would, would be the case, that uh, different people live with different beliefs? Everyone seems to be doing okay. And, and how can this be? How can there not be one that's right or wrong? Well, I mean, I, I think that, um, of course, it's always, it's an initial struggle if you believe something strongly and you meet someone that seems to have moral integrity and is, is serious and they, they disagree with you. And so that creates, in philosophy, this is called the kind of problem of moral luck. It's sort of the awareness that, gosh, if I had been raised in Saudi Arabia, I would probably be Muslim. Um, and so that, that should be a struggle and it should, and it should humble us enough to sort of say, okay, I want to analyze what it is I believe and, and assess it. On the other hand, it doesn't follow that no one's right. You know, just because five people disagree, for instance, of our math problem, it doesn't mean there's not one right answer. And so I think the problem is, as you said, why would it be that, let's say, let's say there is a God and he has a particular 
characteristics. Why would there be this kind of diversity? And so I can only explain it as a Christian, is that I think the world is, the world is good as created, and I think God is knowable. I also think that we're fallen, and so our, our reason and our capacity to apprehend the, the truth uh, is partially fractured, and so we, we struggle with that. Um, and so very much is left up to circumstances. I think God has created us with a huge amount of freedom, so much freedom that we're even able to create whole cultures that maybe misunderstand certain things. I am comforted by the fact that I think um, you can find evidence of a natural moral law underneath even the kind of diversity beliefs, uh, but it's very, very general. There's still a lot of room for variation. But I do think ultimately for me as a Christian, it's, it's testimony to the fact that God takes freedom very seriously. He also so takes the fact that we're social beings very seriously. I mean, this is a staggering realization when you have children that you realize, gosh, I could, I could destroy this human being's life really easily, a child. But I think that's, that's evidence that God, he wanted to create us as individuals in his image. And he also wanted to create us as social beings in which we have a huge amount of responsibility uh, for each other, but also this amazing ability to influence uh, other people uh, for good or for ill. Hey, very good, Greg. What, uh, what question do you have at this point? Well, yeah, I think that's what seems like the direction you're going with this is, is what I would call worldview, where mm-hmm. there's certain, certain premises. So if I could, I want to press rewind, and I'm going to go back to your background, because I, I'm going to have to confess, I don't know what an analytic uh, philosophy uh, is, if you can explain mm-hmm. that to us. And then I'd sure. kind of like to move from that as that's kind of your your uh, your base your your intellectual base and then let's try to mm-hmm. un- unwind that a little bit so we can all you know go into that a little deeper yeah so analytic philosophy the term is really kind of a product of the 20th century in which you have appreciate you have the history of western philosophy starting with socrates and plato and up to the modern age with immanuel kant and hegel and hume and people like that um, and then what happened in the 19th and early 20th century is there started to be a, a split in philosophy in the West between so-called continental philosophy that was following people like Hegel that tried to build these big metaphysical systems. And then analytic philosophy, which said, okay, philosophy needs to be more humble in what it does. We're not going to build these giant metaphysical systems. But what we can do is we can learn to get clear. So we can get clear on our language. We can get more careful in the way we formulate arguments. So at least we can kind of try to clarify things. And so that was the, this movement of analytic philosophy in the 20th century. And it can get really, really technical and almost mathematical that focuses on logic and argument and clarifying terms and things like that. And so that's where I actually ended up academically was in analytic philosophy, just because I thought, this is really useful. It's really useful to be able to kind of clarify things. You might not solve things, but very often disagreements are the result of not defining terms. And so um, so that is really where I ended up was, was in this analytic philosophical uh, uh, movement, which really just focuses m- more on clarity uh, than anything else. And so that, I bring that to bear. I mean, it's a, it ends up being kind of a Swiss army knife. I joke that analytic philosophy it allows you to be a parasite on the other disciplines. So I write a lot on economics and you can go in there and say, gosh, a lot of this, a lot of the problems here seem to be the result of terms not getting defined correctly. Um, and I, I do that in, in theology, obviously. I try to kind of clarify these things because very often I think um, some disagreements. So for instance, I actually think the disagree, some of the disagreement between Martin Luther 
uh, and, and Catholic doctrine was actually the result of not defining terms clearly. And there's a, there's a Lutheran Catholic dialogue that's been going on for about 30 years over the doctrine of justification that's come to the same conclusion that probably 80% of the disagreement was the result of misunderstanding each other and 20% is real disagreement. So that's, that's what analytic philosophy Hmm. Okay, so that, that's actually really valuable in this discussion because we come at this from, from different perspectives. Uh, knowing that we have clearly defined terms is going to be critical to really coming to any understanding or even um, advancing our discussion. So that's, yeah, that's absolutely really helpful. It really is helpful because, you know, it's like you want to, before you figure out, okay, we, I think we disagree, but okay, wait, are we using the terms the same way? And this happens constantly in economics. Some person will use the, word, use the word capitalism and somebody use the word socialism, but they never get defined. And so you end up, you're talking about different things, which is just really not very productive. So let, okay. let's go, well, go ahead, Rich, go ahead. Yeah, well, this is a real basic question, but uh, how many different sects of Catholicism and Christianity are there? I mean, I've, you know, there's Baptists, Presbyterians. Oh sect. yeah, it's a great question. And in fact, I've tried to figure this out myself because, so there's, there's what I think is a myth, which is that there are 35,000 uh, Protestant denominations, and I don't actually think that's true. I mean, there's one, well, there's one, Catholic, well, there's one Roman Catholicism. So there's the Roman Rite Catholic Church with it, you know, head in in um, in Rome in the Vatican. But the Roman Rite is actually not the only one within the Catholic Church. There's also Eastern Rite traditions that are in communion with Rome. And so the benefit there is that you have this kind of visible subunity of diversity between. And then you've got um, the Eastern, some of the Eastern churches that are not communion with Rome, that are mostly nationally, so Greek, Orthodox, Russian, and so forth. But, and so those are, you know, fairly kind of large groups. Um, but among Protestants, I mean, Protestantism kind of by its very nature, uh, it, it, you know, it, it tends to be fragmented. And so I do think plausibly we could say there are 5,000 um, individual in Protestant institutions, if you were to sort of count them up in a fair way. But that doesn't mean there's 5,000 different doctrinal systems. I mean, you can, you, can, you could join those together in about three or four major traditions in Protestant. I guess every church uh, is different in a way. If you attend any, any church for a period of months or years, you're going to, I guess, drift or have your own flavor of whatever sect you're in anyway. So I guess there's hundreds of thousands or millions of uh, variations anyway. And then within each individual person, you have that too. So. <laughs> that's true. I mean, because that, that's sort of pushing it to the extreme, but everybody has some kind of slight variation, you know? And so if you wanted to sort of maximize it, you could say, well, every, yeah, every individual congregation um, is different. But if you sort of focus just at the kind of official institutional level and individual denominations, hundreds or a thousand, but I, I, I think you could, you could actually, um, you could count Protestant traditions. There's the Anglican tradition, then that there's the Methodist, um, and then there's the Lutherans and the Calvinists or Reformed, uh, and then Anabaptist and Pentecostal. Those are kind of the big groups. And, and I would say all those thousands of Protestant denominations fall within one of those six or so major chains. Yeah, how do you, how do you think people feel and react when they interact with someone in their own congregation or they inter interact with someone that's also, let's say, a Catholic, or then they interact with someone that is a, uh, a Methodist, or mm -hmm. then they interact then with someone that's a completely different religion or no religion at all. I guess I'm realizing there's all these levels of association, and I'm sure yeah. we're all like that. I don't know how, how we characterize it, but 
I wonder if you've ever thought about that. I, yeah, you know, what's funny is there's this great line from, I think it's from Freud, it's attributed to Freud, uh, this idea of the narcissism of small differences. And the idea is that, you know, you fight a lot more with your siblings than you do with people that live one city over that you hardly know, precisely because you have so much in common. And I, I found that to be true as well. In some ways, like if I'm if I am talking to a Muslim, you know, that I work with, I don't know that much about Muslim theology. And so in some ways, we're not going to be able to get into highly refined disputes over doctrine. Whereas a fellow Catholic, let's say a fellow Orthodox Catholic that takes the faith very seriously, you can get in these knockdown, drag out arguments over just the precise way the liturgy ought to look. I mean, I've seen these arguments and try to avoid them myself, but they're actually fairly intense. And the same thing with Protestants can get in these really narrow arguments in some ways, because we feel so passionately, we know so much about it. And so that's the sort of irony is that very often the really nasty arguments take place between people that otherwise share a whole lot in common. And, that, and that, that's sort of the irony that people sort of outside the community might not realize is that people are actually really close, but then differ by 1%. They'll spend an inordinate amount of time on that 1% that they disagree on rather than 99% that they do. I think I I like it's, just, you know, it's just like families fighting or uh, people that seem to be very close uh, fighting more than people that are very different. So it's, it's just funny that there's an analog there. But uh, Greg, yeah, the re- yeah, I guess if we could, I'd like to back up to maybe a higher, uh, kind of a 30,000 foot level. And, mm-hmm. and Jake, could you just talk a little bit about, again, kind of going back to this idea of a worldview, what are the yeah. distinctives of the Christian faith that, that you see and that you, and, and how, how you would contrast that with the rest of the, uh, the different faith tradition? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I mean, monotheism is the big division that I think distinguishes Christians, Jews, and Muslims from other religious traditions, with the exception there's actually, uh, there's actually a, a branch of Hinduism that is more or less monotheistic. But that's the kind of, I think, the sort of big divide. Is the world the result of, um, is it eternal? Has it always existed? Or did it come into existence sometime in the finite past? Is it self-existent? That is, doesn't need to be explained because it's the fundamental reality. Or is the cosmos the result of the a free creation, a choice of a, of a personal God? Those are, that's kind of the biggest worldview question I think you can ask. If the universe, does it depend on a choice? And so it's the result of a personal decision, or is it itself self-existing and maybe impersonal? Um, and, and so you're going to end up either a materialist or a pantheist if you say, well, the universe is self-existent. Um, you're going to end up a theist, and that is a monotheist, if you think, no, the world, God is the fundamental reality. And he creates everything else that is. So that's, I think, the biggest kind of worldview uh, difference. And so then let's say you, you end up on the theist side. So maybe you think the art, evidence of order and design and purpose in the universe is good. Maybe you know something about Big Bang cosmology and you know the universe isn't eternal. So you think, okay, it needs something else to explain itself. You end up a theist, let's say. Um, then you're going to have to decide, okay, look, what about these d- differences between Judaism and Christianity and Islam? And so I think really to, to, to get space between those, you end up having to look at historical things. I don't think you're going to figure out, you're not going to be able to decide between, say, Islam and Christianity by studying astronomy, right? It's going to be these kind of historical questions. I mean, what, you know, is there a reason to, to believe the claims of the New Testament, for instance, and as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, he said, you know, if Christ has been not raised, then 
our faith is uh, is in vain. In other words, if God re- didn't actually raise Jesus from the dead, then that basic claim of Christianity is false. And so you end up having to kind of look at these historical things. And that's the, in some ways, both the irony, the strength and the weakness of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam is we make very specific historical claims. They're not just these kind of broad metaphysical claims, but we're claiming that God did particular things in history. And so uh, I think but the, in principle, our faiths are implicated by both things that could be discovered in natural science and that could be discovered, uh, you know, in history or even in archaeology. I mean, if we found the bones of Jesus, for instance, and it was decisive, I think that would just devastate Christianity. But that, I think it's the re- reality of the faith. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be the end of the, the Christian faith as we know it. Yeah. I mean, that's what Easter or the actually what Protestants would call Resurrection Sunday, the celebration of him being raised from the dead, that he is alive. And if exactly. he's not alive, then everything else, it's like dominoes. They, it all just collapses. It really does. I mean, there's, a lot, there's secondary beliefs, but that one, that's just absolutely fundamental for Christianity. Well, now you obviously have made that choice. What, what is the reason that you have, you have chosen that? For example, the faith claims around the resurrection. What's the evidence mm-hmm. that persuaded you that that really happened? Well, that was really, I mean, honestly, it was C.S. Lewis initially, I mean, at a kind of popular level, his book, Mere Christianity and Miracles. So um, I, was already con- I was already convinced of theism. So in other words, I believe there was a transcendent God. So in principle, um, if God is truly transcendent, he's not dependent upon the world. And so he could, he sustains it and he could also act directly within it. So at a metaphysical or philosophical level, I didn't think, well, a resurrection is impossible. I think that's really important if you're going to assess the evidence. It's like, well, if you're a materialist, resurrections aren't even possible. So it doesn't matter what the evidence is. But if you're you already believe that there's a God or that it's possible there's a God, then you look at the historical evidence. And so I think, honestly, I think a resurrection is the thing that best explains the existence of the church. I think um, the idea that you would have a a group of Jews, they're all Jews in the early church who would never, or hardcore monotheists, none of whom were expecting a Messiah that would be killed and then be raised from the dead. So this was in no one's expectation. And so it was contrary to expectation. Um, and there's a, there's a Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig that's written detailed monographs, of historical evidence for the resurrection. And so later as a you know, graduate student in philosophy, I read him and just, I found the historical arguments quite persuasive. I mean, these aren't obviously mathematical deductive proofs. So you have to use evidence to appropriate. People. But I think the evidence is just really good. I think it's the best explanation for what we see actually happened historically. And then, of course, faith itself. I mean, faith is not just believing something without evidence. Faith is effective. It's trust. I have faith in my wife, um, not because I have a deductive proof that she's, you know, she's faithful to me, but I trust her personally. And so I think you, as a Christian, you should, the evidence ought to point in its favor, not to be, what well, your beliefs ought to be consistent with the evidence. And then, I, but I think there's a kind of secondary evidence once you commit to it personally, in which you see things in the light of the faith. So it's not only something, a conclusion you come to, but it becomes a kind of an interpretive grid that allows you to explain experience, explain it really well. Yes, that, I think that, that, that's what I would call a worldview, where how exactly. you interpret your, your environment and the world around you and, and everything, everything socially, uh, interrelationally, uh, even, even you know, as you touched on earlier, cosmology, all of these things are filtered through this grid that we, we, we don't even, it's like fish who don't know that they're wet. We have a worldview mm-hmm. that we've adopted somehow from, from parents, from school, from the culture. 
And then that becomes our grid for interpreting everything. But we all have ac access to the same information, the same set of facts, mm -hmm. but how we interpret that will be completely determined by the worldview that we, we choose. Yeah, or I, I guess I would put it that I think our worldview, we don't want our, in some ways we don't want our fundamental assumptions just to always be buried so we're unaware of them. In fact, the fact that we're talking about this, right, is the process of kind of surfacing uh, our views. But sort of ideally, I think what we want is for there to be this dialectical feedback between say our observations and our assumptions so that they fit, you know, and you could also find yourself, well, maybe I've got a, like a materialistic assumption is preventing me from entertaining certain things. Um, that, that's a, a kind of a, a, a bad grid. Um, I, I just, I, I love C.S. Lewis's line that I'm just paraphrasing, but he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not simply because I can see it, but because by, by it, I can see everything else. And what you'd want, if you have a, if you have a good worldview, it should help explain things and explain things ideally well, and maybe even better than some of the alternatives. Yeah, I would agree. Very good. Well, guys, we're, we're just about out of time. And I think we really lucked out with you, Jay, as a first guest. I mean, you were very well spoken. It was, it was awesome. Um, Thanks so much. It's good agree. to be with you guys. It's a lot of fun. It was a great yeah. discussion. I really appreciate th th this time together. I really do. All right. Uh, you know, I guess the call to action is, Jay, uh, for people listening that want to know more about, uh, you know, you in particular and, you know, the Catholic faith, what are your recommendations for? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to follow my work, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter at, at Dr. J. Richards. I also run the website Stream, which is at stream.org. And I should put in a plug. It's funny because people often ask me, what's the best kind of uh, sort of summary of Catholic, the Catholic view of things? And ironically, the book uh, Catholicism for Dummies. For, forget the title. It's actually a really good book. If you're just curious, okay, what are the kind of what is the Catholic view of this or that? Catholicism for Dummies is actually a terrific book. Well, great. Well, Jay, thank you very much for coming. I appreciate it. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be with you both. Yes, thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.